Alrighty, everybody, welcome back to another Red Petro podcast. Right now, we've got the Basin Breakdown for the month of August. If you don't know, we do a monthly recap, Basin by Basin, all the way through. I am joined by host of the periodical podcast, Kevin. How you doing, guys? And we are excited to bring you the highlights of August, some ups, some downs, but good all around. Ooh, that, that was a good rhyme. I like that. But first story, we're going to go ahead, start DJ Niall Brera, Colorado. In a move that we have become all too familiar with, Colorado has adjusted its taxing on the oil and gas industry to address state budget deficits that are a result of the still depressed oil prices. So although oil prices have been increasing slowly, the month of August showed that WTI prices could climb ever so slightly and remained in the realm of $42. Again, this is August. The Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission raised the tax on production to compensate for a $3.4 million hole in the organization's budget with support from the industry and environmental groups. You don't see that very often. Industry support came from the fact that the increase was scaled back from what it potentially could have been thanks to the slightly increasing prices, and environmental groups are already pleased. Environmental groups are always pleased when oil and gas is taxed more, but Boulder County Commissioner Matt Jones urged the commission to go for the full increase in production tax in order to fulfill the agency's new mandate to protect public health, safety, welfare, and the environment. Governor Polis expressed his approval for the increase by saying it is, quote, viewed as a way to have the staff they need to process permitting quicker, end quote. So, Tavis, you find it funny that Boulder County has been, you know, pursuing Senate Bill 181 to try and completely eliminate all oil and gas development in their county, but now they're trying to increase the taxes on oil and gas. It's either get rid of it or, right? you know, you can't reap have the benefits. Both. Yeah, reap the benefits of taxes or get rid of it. You can't, have profit. can't profit off of what you banned. On some other state-level notes, Occidental, as we've talked about plenty of times before, is frantic for some free cash. Back in mid-August, Occidental announced that it had entered into a purchase and sale agreement to divest its land assets in Wyoming, Colorado and Utah. CEO Vicki Holub said, quote, This transaction significantly advances the progress against our $2 billion plus divestiture target for 2020. End quote. This deal is expected to free up approximately $1.33 billion for the aforementioned plan, which is put into place as a preparatory goal for when debt matures and needs to be paid off. Occidental has been struggling to get rid of foreign Anadarko assets in a market where few people are acquiring assets, so this is a significant win for the company, but an almost negligible amount compared to the several billion dollars that will mature in the coming two years. Tavis and I actually talked about this in a previous periodical. Uh, we were discussing E&P mergers and acquisitions, looking at the Oxy Anadarko. So if you want a little bit more information on this story, Definitely check out the Basin Breakdown articles that Tavis is going to post here and also definitely our previous periodical. And hey, if you like listening to us, check that out too. Boom, boom, boom. Speaking of boom, 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 some wells are actually under threat from a record fire in Colorado. So the month of August was hot in more ways than one. The Pine Gulch fire was the second largest fire in the state of Colorado, burning an area of just over 139,000 acres. Storms over Pine Gulch continued to blow embers to other sources of dry fuel, spreading the fire. The fire contained dozens of oil and gas wells, which had been confirmed damaged. The fire department confirmed that they were working with operators in the fire department did say that they were working with operators in the area to protect the sites from damage and prevent increased damage from compromised gas lines. Kind of scary to think about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 
See, this to me is it's a win and it's a loss. It's a loss for the oil and gas industry, you know, the industry we're working so hard to, you know, promote and, you know, keep profitable, keep flowing, but at the same time, it's it's almost a good thing that, you know, these weren't homes, these weren't people's livelihoods, these weren't individuals. Yes, a company is going to struggle because it's going to be a lot of money to, you know, get these back up to back up and running, back up to par if you will. So, kind of like I said, wins and losses here. Moving on up to the Bakken fields of North Dakota, we've got some fun financial and economic info for you. So just how much can North Dakota's state-owned minerals be worth? Well, the State Department of Trust Lands commissioned a local company, Mineral Tracker, to determine how much mineral royalties are worth, and they paid them $350,000 to do this. Numbers are finally in, and it read that approximately one45 billion dollars of mineral royalties are left in the state. Now this number may seem low, but it's framed by variables such as projected future drilling, current oil prices, and declining productivity. Extrapolations from the company showed that the last well to be drilled on state-owned lands 30 years from now. If that price goes up, that date could become sooner. But I've got a little thought exercise for you here. Since 1981, there has been about 200 billion dollars of oil produced in the state. We got data from the EIA, looked at it by um, 1,000 barrels a day, multiplied that by an average of, you know, $45 per barrel, and we're looking at north of $200 billion of oil has been produced in the state. And that's conservative, too. Quick, dirty math at $45 a barrel and at $200 billion of production, they're only supposed to claim royalties of $1.45 billion in the next 30 years? It just doesn't seem right to me. Minuscule. So go ahead. You can do it at home, too. Check our math. <laughs> Use the same assumption. Speaking of North Dakota production, let's check out what it's looked like here in the past few months. In fact, if you were able to look at a graph of both oil and gas production for the state of North Dakota, you would see a long, steady increase production until about the start of 2020. But during August, the data for June was collected and organized, and it showed that there's now a little hockey stick at the end of the graph. Or, more simply, production finally increased for that month. This makes sense as oil prices climbed into the $40 per barrel in June, allowing production to be more economic for many producers. It still takes a little bit of time to see these trends thanks to the delay of data collection and organization, but even so, Director of the North Dakota Department of Mineral Resources, Lynn Helms, says prices for the region need to be in about the $45 range in order to prevent another falloff like the one we witnessed in the first half of the year. In addition to the looming threat of falling prices, there is an upcoming election. It's looking more and more likely that Biden will be elected, and if this happens, drilling permits could be cut by some 25%, causing hundreds of thousands of barrels a day in production to be cut. Now, taking that into account, maybe that's why there's only going to be $1.45 billion in mineral resources left in the state in 30 years. Yeah, and it's tough to look at this, too, because this is data from June that was organized by August so that we could present it to you in September. But the small downtick in pricing down to $37, I think, is going to scare a lot of people out of production. So that happened, what, in this month of September? It'll be reported. In, uh, you, you get what I'm trying to say. I'll probably even cut this out later. Even so... The Army demands thought for precedence. What? What's going on here? So as I'm sure you heard in the past month, the Dakota Access Pipeline had some pretty tumultuous developments. And it served as a rather controversial topic for the month of August as district courts and environmental activists challenged the industry to a game of regulatory tug of war. 
Eventually, the pipeline was allowed to operate while the Army Corps of Engineers kept on with its review. Even so, the Army Corps expressed its distaste with the entire process, saying, quote, if not corrected, the district's court decision will create a new heightened standard of judicial review that will be impossible for agencies to meet as they consider vital infrastructure projects that excite opposition from some sector of society, end quote. Unsurprisingly, the pipeline operator Energy Transfer LP made a similar argument saying, these policies and interventions would discourage infrastructure investment, waste government resources on needless reviews, and create economic and environmental harms that are, quote, far beyond the astronomically unlikely spill risks that plaintiffs claim they seek to prevent, end quote. They also speculated that billions of dollars would be lost between themselves, producers, and the state if this midstream project was to be shut down in these stages. I mean, even the army is piping up now and saying, this is ridiculous. This is a waste of money, a waste of time, and a waste of resources. I, I, and I agree. And the Army Corps of Engineers is a very prestigious group. It's not like they just went out to, you know, some rednecks and said, you know, hey, you know, do an environmental review here. It's a very prestigious group of individuals. These guys are putting a lot of time and effort into this, and they're just getting so much pushback. And I think it's good to see that um, a group like this is finally starting to give a little pushback as well, saying, like you said, this is just getting ridiculous. Almost as ridiculous as the permit prices we're seeing up in the Marcellus region in Pennsylvania. So, in early August, there was the implementation of new regulation that raises the price of a shale gas well in Pennsylvania. Earlier this year, a company would have to fork over some $5,000 for a shale gas permit. But today, that number's going to run you $12,500, or a 150% increase. These permits are the basis of funding for the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection regulatory program. So prices are adjusted from time to time to keep pace with costs of running the program. Even so, why the big jump? Well, the new price tag is based on an analysis of permitting trends between 2014 and 2017, which was already outdated before COVID absolutely tanked prices and limited drilling investment. In the first half of 2020, only 523 permits were issued, which is the smallest quantity in a six-month period since 1993. This is likely a combination of trends, and companies are scared to drill since permits are only good for one year. And that makes sense. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen a year from now. I don't even know where I'll be living a year from now. No kidding. But, I mean, that jump, 5,000 to 12,000, that's absurd. It sounds unreasonable. I think it's unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> But next, we have good news for gas producers all across the nation. And it kicked off right there in the Marcellus gas region of Pennsylvania. The Trump administration has been working hard at undoing Obama-era rules that were implemented to limit greenhouse gas emissions and went straight to Pittsburgh to make things official. Andrew Wheeler, the EPA administrator, was there to sign the rollback and praise the strategies that he feels are certain to strengthen and promote American energy. The EPA first proposed the rollback last year after accusing the Obama administration of enacting a legally flawed policy that, when revoked, will save companies tens of millions of dollars a year in compliance requirements, and not to mention time, without changing the trajectory of methane emissions. Sounds like a win-win. Even so, many states, California included, are expected to draft up a lawsuit and claim that the changes are illegal. Lifting these regulations could relax a lot of the regulatory pressures for small and mid-sized companies, but time will tell how long this repeal will last. So it seems the industry in that region of the country is pleased with the government, but what about the people? Well, there is strong support for industry and those government policies associated in the Marcellus. 
A recent poll from API Pennsylvania uncovers the tremendous local support for the industry. The poll revealed that 90% of Pennsylvania voters value American energy, affordability, security, and independence. Granted, it would be kind of hard to say that you don't value that, but even so. Additionally, the polling shows that 60% of registered voters in the battleground state would be more likely to vote for a candidate who supports access to natural gas and oil produced in the United States. This support likely stems from the fact that Pennsylvania is the second largest natural gas producer in the country. This appears to be an accurate portrayal of results in the state, as a similar poll showed overwhelming support for the domestic energy development and independence. The people of Ohio seem to be aware of that fact, as much of their economy hinges on the development of natural gas plays as well, so they are also likely to vote by that standard, and this is definitely something to be expected when you're the second largest natural gas producer, but as you and I live in Colorado, this is not a sentiment that we get to see all that often, especially being so close to Boulder. No, not at all. It's it's kind of refreshing, if you will. Exactly. To know that, oh yeah, oh, my uncle works in oil and gas, so I'll support the industry. That's, that's cool. Just random people coming together. As we're going forward, we're definitely going to keep you updated on these stories, because just here in the past couple weeks, we've seen, you know both uh, presidential candidate nominee Biden and current President Trump visit the state, both trying to really support oil and gas, even though both of them are constantly changing their energy policies to really just win at all costs. We'll definitely keep you updated on these stories. Now that we're finished with the Marcellus region, we can say that we've passed gas and moved on to the Powder River Basin. I got to give credit to Kevin for that joke. But a behemoth project for Wyoming In early August, the BLM approved an absolutely massive project dubbed the Mineta Divide Project, which includes the approval and development of 4,250 oil and gas wells, hot damn. Athon Energy Management and Burlington Resources combined their efforts to propose the project, which is expected to recover 18.16 trillion cubic feet of natural gas and 254 million barrels of oil over 65 years, generating 182 million for federal royalties. $875 $875 million in state severance tax, and $106 million in ad valorem tax annually. Big project. Annually? Lots of money. Dang. Yeah, annually. The scope of the work is not the only large part, considering that the project area includes 327,000 acres of land, of which 23% occupies private lands. So there's going to be some permitting and some money dumped there, too. And additionally, Athon Energy, one of the companies involved, filed for a permit to increase their dumping of wastewater into creeks up to 8.27 million gallons per day after the Wyoming Department of Environmental Quality claimed that they were guilty of violating environmental regulations based on 2019 inspections of the creek. So let's see if the project proposal will be affected by the charges on these grounds and see if they can continue on their own. Well, I, for one, I love the fact that these guys, it seems to be that they're planning for the future. You know, even though... Oil prices are depressed. There's not a whole lot of activity going on out here. They're still moving forward with development plans. I mean, I love it. They're planning for the future. They see that there's a future in energy, which there is, in my opinion. Um, So I really like this. Not a huge fan of the amount of um, wastewater they're dumping into creeks, but, you know, maybe we can compromise. Win some, (laughs) some here. Speaking of environmental issues, the sage grouse are back at it again. Federal Judge Brian Morris stands strong in his opinion that all leases, all leases, in the sage grouse habitat should be tossed. But for now, he's only suspended activity while companies can scramble the appeal. This is a story that our network originally covered back in May, and since then, the judge has voided 
440 oil and gas leases in the greater sagegrass habitat in Montana and Wyoming, claiming that the BLM has failed to follow its own plans for protecting the near-threatened species. Now, people are concerned about the sagegrouse because it's a good indicator of the sagebrush, of the sagebrush ecosystem that it resides in. This is not a new occurrence by any means. A judge in Boise, Idaho, issued a very similar ruling back in February, which destroyed more than $125 million worth of oil and gas leases on public lands that were also home to the big bird. Both judges claimed that the Trump administration illegally curtailed public comment. A lot of these times, these judges get uh, accused of being an activist judge, and uh, it does kind of seem like an abuse of power. According to the American Bar, uh, if you go to the website, the government website, and look up the role of judges, there's an excerpt that says, Their role is to see that the rule of court procedures are followed by both sides without being influenced by public perception or their own personal views. So where's the prosecutor in this situation? Well, well, I think that, you know, that very end statement, you know, without being influenced by their own personal views, I totally understand protecting ecosystems. I totally understand protecting these birds. But, I mean, completely eliminating any kind of oil, it's it's just that's what those areas up north look like. It's just all sagebrush ecosystems. So you try and say that, you know, if there's ever a, you know, a sage grouse in this area, we can't do any development. You're again, we've talked about it before, pretty much just kicking development out of the state. Yeah, not just a little bit of development. Development that is worth, I mean, in the Ohio or the Idaho case, 125 million dollars. Moving out of the Rocky Mountains down south to the West Texas Permian Basin, we're looking at rig counts. The month of August was host to the first United States positive rig count since the beginning of COVID. Texas, of course, saw huge benefits, no thanks to the Eagleford. The state rig count went up some eight rigs. Yeehaw! With the Permian increasing 10. Oh my goodness. But the Eagleford decreased too. Uh. This increase in rig count is riding off of the increase in prices as August saw prices as high as $42 for WTI oil. An increase in price means that there are more people who are able to turn a profit and justify production costs. The worrisome part? Hoping prices will continue to increase in the future. And continue, they did not. And what happened was we had a positive rig count at the end of August, then there was a report of zero, and then a report of negative two. Damn prices. But before we were talking about judges that were trying to stop oil and gas and hinder, well, we're not. We got other activist judges pushing and promoting oil and gas, so it is full steam ahead in Texas. It is no secret that they were guilty of flaring an absurd amount of gas in the past. But to make use of that gas, Kinder Morgan has been attempting to construct a 430-mile, 42-inch pipeline to take that wasted gas to markets. Sounds pretty good to me. Even though it will prevent gas from being needlessly flared, it continues to face plenty of opposition from multiple parties. Residents of Texas Hill Country joined forces with environmental groups to highlight an incident where drilling fluid was spilled in the Blanco River as the pipeline was being built underneath it. To accommodate them, Kinder Morgan did announce plans to build the pipeline around the river. So, good on you, Kinder Morgan. That was pretty cool of you. Next, after that, after the compromise was reached, the Sierra Club filed a motion in April to stop the construction of the pipeline, citing current and future damages that the project would cause to the environment. The motion also claimed that the Again, the Army Corps of Engineers did not complete proper environmental analysis. Heard this one before? Yeah, it's just the same story. Broken record, man. 
U.S. District Judge Robert Pittman for the Western District of Texas said the Sierra Club had not demonstrated adequate future impacts as the pipeline should be operating by next year. So it's a little bit too late. He stated, quote, granting an injunction, an injunction at this stage would not unring the bell. Harm that is extremely unlikely to occur is not a definitive threat of future harm warranting a preliminary injunction, end quote. Sierra Club staff attorney Joshua Smith said, We are disappointed that the court declined to put an immediate stop to this illegal construction, and also referred to the project as a dangerous fracked gas pipeline, end quote. How is this an illegal construction? They got all the permitting, they went through all the legal battles and hoops, that guy's statement can kind of, in my opinion, just be thrown out the window. Oh, totally. I actually added him on LinkedIn in hopes that I could maybe ask him about it further, but he has not replied yet. And I do think that Judge Pittman made a pretty reasonable claim. He said, I understand that you are concerned, but this thing's going to be completed by next year. You should have maybe said this earlier. Well, we saw that the Dakota Access Pipeline has been shut down, even though it's been running. So... We'll just keep you guys updated on this one, too. Just more issues with pipelines. And if you want more info on pipelines, definitely check out some of our old periodicals and periodical podcasts. We do cover this topic quite a bit. Keeping things in Texas, moving to central Texas specifically, we've got the Eagleford Basin. And uh, really, a whole lot of crickets over there, man. Not much going on because it is not as profitable. But... I was able to find a little bit of a story. Marathon Oil is leading the pack. Kind of speculative, but the Eagleford Shale has not been as profitable as the Permian thanks to associated production costs, but Marathon Oil is hopeful for the next year. They claim their Eagleford plays can break even at $35 a barrel, given that they can drive well costs below $750 per lateral foot and maintain a productivity IP30 of 970 barrels per day. So... I guess that makes sense. We can make money if it gets cheaper is a pretty sensible claim. But the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas just conducted a survey and found that out of seven participating firms, the average break-even price was $46 with the low being 40 So if Marathon is able to accomplish this masterful feat of cost minimization, it will likely secure a large share of profits to be made in this field until others can catch up. Marathon put out a report saying, quote, Marathon Oil is confident in taking on an unhedged risk going into 2021 to maximize on potential gains if commodity prices were to recover from the current level. However, this poses a huge threat to the company as the economic crisis is yet to be over, end quote. Marathon still has $3 billion in undrawn credit, and the first of its debts will be maturing in the second half of 2022 at $1 billion, so they have some time to figure this out. That still seems gutsy to me, though. Unhedged? Um, I... Go for it. <laughs> yeah, and their claim is we can make more money if we can make it cheaper, which uh, I imagine probably everyone in that region is trying to do. But that's really all the news I could find for the Eagleford. I mean, outside of infrastructure in the area closing down, I mean, there's hotels for sale in San Antonio. And one of their biggest claims, the biggest selling points is that it's close to Eagleford companies operating in the Eagleford Shale. So, what happens when those guys shut down, go out of business? Exactly. And they are shutting down and going out of business. Without Corona, I don't think the area needs as many hotels to house really the servicemen that they were built for. So, let's hope the area can, you know, you know, find use for those areas and, and really pull through this. So, um, we're rooting for you. Right. If we can get that break even price to the $46, and a lot of people would be very happy. But I think that about clears it up for the Eagleford and Texas as a whole, which brings us to one of our favorite and most controversial segments. Say it with me, California. 
We touched on this before, but you know what? Let's touch on it again. California is leading the nation with the worst power grid. Isn't that a title you would love to have there, Tavis? Number one, baby. Near the end of August, millions of Californians were denied power as high temperatures caused the demand for power to exceed the supply. The green energy policies that the state pursuits are likely exacerbating the problem of reduced grid reliability. Between Pacific Gas and Electric in the central and northern parts of California and Edison in the south, up to 2 million customers were left without power for hours. When examining power outages between 2008 and 2017, California has solidified itself as the champion with 4,297 outages. Great work, California. Great work. Texas was in second with 1,603 outages. Hmm. If considering the four categories of power outages are weather, faulty equipment, unknowns, and vehicle accidents, California still holds the title for all four from 2014 to 2017. What a champion. In recent years, natural gas plants have been experiencing closures, although nuclear and coal plants have also been eliminated from the state's portfolio far before that. In addition, more than 30 Californian cities have banned the use of all gas appliances, including San Francisco. Even though California continues to struggle to deliver the energy the state demands, there is still no plans to address this issue. And it would be cool if the plans to address this issue were to maybe make no change. That would be okay, right? That would be bad, but it would be worse than what they are going to do, which is pushing hard for electric commercial, industrial, and fleet vehicles. Imagine the grinding halt all of industry in California comes to if this happens next year. Oh, sorry. Can't bring our ships into the port and unload them. You just got to wait until our truck's batteries charge, but they can't because people don't even have basic power needs. Yeah, it's it's just a problem that's getting worse and worse and worse. And I mean, people are, are, are trying to pin the wildfires in California on, you know, oil and gas development. I just, there's so many problems down in California that I think their energy crisis needs to be solved. And in my opinion, the best way to get that solved Let's look into using oil and gas more. But that is unlikely to happen, especially if California's own makes it into the White House. So Biden's running mate, Miss Kamala Harris, served as a politician in California in varying attorney roles for over a decade. And her Californian roots are definitely showing as she campaigns for the VP position. Although Biden has mentioned that he does intend to limit hydraulic fracturing operations, Harris has made it clear that she would like to ban the practice nationally. Even so, senior campaign officials are making it clear that Biden will block new hydraulic fracturing wells on federal land. Biden's energy agenda was already shaping up to be one of the most green in U.S. history, but the addition of Harris only solidifies the intention. As California's attorney general, Harris filed lawsuits against Phillips 66, ConocoPhillips, and its small to mid-cap companies for alleged environmental violations. She was also against Chevron's plan to expand refinery in Richmond, saying that it risked accidents and would be responsible for exasperating climate change this one facility exasperating climate change she was also against valero's energy bid to receive rail shipments of crude saying there was a risk for spills and explosions even so environmental groups claim that she is not doing enough for the environment if granted an oval office position it will likely be more difficult for oil and gas to operate in the united states what do you suppose her position is going to be on pipelines if she thinks that, you know, rail shipments are going to cause explosions? Oh, man, I'm, I'm sure we can all read between the lines with that one. But come on. Yeah, of course, rail shipments have a risk of explosions. Cars have a risk of crashing. I have a risk of dying every day for so many different things. But 
we try to mitigate that risk and balance it, not say, nope, put them in a safe bubble. Who knows? Maybe I'm taking a risk myself talking about California like that. So let's get off that topic and move to the scoop stack basins in Oklahoma. So just last month, you may have heard in the last basin breakdown, the Supreme Court announced that over half of the area in Oklahoma is actually property of the Native American tribes that reside there. Now this month, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt asked that the EPA give him state jurisdiction over environmental regulations on Native American reservations. Stitt has claimed that he intends to work alongside and not control the sovereign nations of Oklahoma. Of the chiefs he has reached out to, several have allegedly expressed excitement working alongside with the government for state to federal negotiations. Stitt has mentioned how he wants the tribes to be successful, but not at the expense of non-tribal business such as oil and gas operations. Considering that the EPA is currently under the direct control of the Trump administration, it is likely that this request will be granted, and I think this is pretty cool. It's definitely hard to balance the interests of so many different people, but it seems respectful and professional so far, and that's not something we get to say about government very much. No, absolutely, and kind of like we said in this last episode, or of the last episode of Basin Breakdown, that is, I love the direction where this is going. It seems to be this very open dialogue, this very... Uh, scratch my back, I scratch yours. I think the direction this is headed is great. And I mean, to me, the worst case scenario here is that it's kept at a state level and really that's not really a downside. So wherever this goes, I think it's a positive direction. I agree. So we've talked about pipeline delays plenty of times in the past, but this one is a little bit different than what you would expect. It is not uncommon to see third parties attempting to intervene and shut down pipeline projects, but even the projects that are approved and have little opposition are being held back. The Mid-Continent Supply Heater Interstate Project, and that's a mouthful, asked the FERC for an extension on completing their pipeline by the very end of 2022. The pipeline stretches 234 miles from Kingfisher, Oklahoma to the Texas border and is specifically designed to deliver natural gas. Although the pipeline began partial service in the second quarter of this year, the project is three compressors station shy of being complete. COVID introduced delays into commercializing the project, so little more time is needed until the compressor stations can be added to the rest of the project. Once completed, the pipeline is capable of moving 1.44 billion cubic feet of gas per day. You know, it sounds like they're moving, again, moving in the right direction, but just COVID delays are hampering everyone, but, you know, it's kind of nice to see that it's out of their control beyond right. individuals trying it's to not, shut it down. It's not a judge shutting it down. It's not a group of environmentalists chaining themselves to anything. It's just supply chain has been affected and people can't produce what they need to produce. And that is what we have for Oklahoma. And that is what we have for this month's Basin Breakdown podcast. So thank you again for joining us. Kevin, always a pleasure to have you. Thanks you can, for having me as always. Of course. You can read Kevin's work on the Periodical Podcast on RarePetro.com, or you can find even older Basin Breakdowns to see how things change over time on the website as well. So be sure to subscribe. Let us know what you'd like to hear in the reviews or contact us directly at podcast at rarepetro.com until we see you next time take care everybody 